A reading from Peter's first letter to the early church, chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Jason, and I'm here on staff at the church as well. And I also want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads. And uh, I want to start today um, telling you a little bit of a, a story from my life. And there's several reasons that I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, one, you know, last week, if you were here, Nathan, who taught us uh, so well last week, started off with a story about one of his very first driving experiences as a teenager. I have one as well. This is another story. This is a story of my one of my first driving experiences, but it's also uh, kind of a twofer. It's a Father's Day story as well. It's a great story about my dad, but it does tie into what I want to talk to you about today. So when I was 15, 16, learning how to drive, um, we uh, found a great deal on what would become my first car. Found a 1989 black Nissan Sentra. Was not a cool car, but it was cool to me because it was my first one, and me and my dad were going to go and pick up this car, and we're going to drive it home. But there was only one catch, and you know there's a catch, right? Here's the catch. At that point in my driving experience, I had only learned how to drive on an, an automatic transmission, which my parents drove, and I had learned how to drive on that car. This car that we were going to buy, this Nissan Sentra, was a stick shift. So what I naturally assumed was... My dad and I were going to drive to this little local dealership around here, and we were going to pick up this car, and dad was going to drive me home and show me all the things and show me how it works. Because I'd watched before. I'd known that it was a lot more involved in a stick shift than there was an automatic, and dad was going to bring me home. We're going to take it out on the road together. He was going to instruct me uh, and show me how to drive it and be, you know, just kind of ease me into that and then turn me loose. But, see, I didn't know my dad. And the thing is, uh, you guys don't know my dad. You, you think he's that sweet dude that waved at you in the lobby in there, right? And he's not. He's, my, dad, my dad comes from a school of parenting that really doesn't exist much anymore. It's the school of parenting that believes you don't teach a bird to fly before you kick them out of the nest. You kick them out of the nest, and they figure it out on the way down. That's my dad. So we, uh, we get the car, we sign all the paperwork, and we walk outside of this little local dealership. And, and, and when I say the word literally, I don't mean it like the kids do. I mean literally, Dad threw me the keys across the parking lot. And I caught the keys, and I knew what that meant. And so I said to my dad, Dad, you know I can't drive this car. And he said, well, you're going to, so take me home. 
Now, home was normally about a 30-minute drive from this dealership. I don't know how long it took. Let's just say it took a lot longer than that. Um, I, I stalled that car out so many times, I cannot even begin to count how many times we stopped that car and had to restart it. I dreaded every intersection. I, dreaded, I was praying the entire, this is one of the closest moments I've ever been to God. I prayed <laughs> the entire road trip, the, all the way home at every intersection. I prayed at every light. I prayed, God, make it green. God, make it green. Every car that stopped, God, make them go. Every, everything I could do to just beg God for me not to have to stop this car and restart that clutch because I knew what was going to happen. Whiplash was going to happen every single time. And, and again, if you know my dad, we're driving home, and he's sitting in the passenger seat, and he's not saying a word. He's just so calm. He's just Now, he's got whiplash from all that, but he's, he's just not saying anything. He's just kind of, and I'm over there just getting angrier and angrier and angrier with every grinding gear. I'm so angry. I just cannot contain myself. I'm saying words that I cannot repeat here. But I finally, after a long time, I finally get the car home. I get it into the driveway, and I did one of those things that you look back on and you think is one of the most brilliant things a 16-year-old could have said in that moment. And again, when I say literally, I mean literally. I threw the keys back at my dad, much harder than the way he threw them at me, and I stormed into the house, and I said, I am never driving that car ever again. And you know how that one turned out. So I'm driving to school the next week, and I literally spent the next few weeks going to school super early so that I could get into the parking lot and find a parking space that was on a hill like this, and no, my, none of my friends would see me. And then I waited until all my friends cleared out of the parking lot before I got out because I didn't want them. I was so embarrassed. I didn't want them to see me not be able to drive this car very well. And of course, again, you know how the story goes. I drove that car all the way through college until the engine, it gave out. The engine literally gave out on me. I drove that car until it died. And the next two vehicles that I bought were trucks with manual transmissions <laughs> because I loved driving a stick so much. I, I, I wish I had one today. You just can't hardly find them anymore. But I learned something through that. Now, why did I tell you that story? Now, it was not to impress you with my dad's parenting skills, although pretty good one, right? Pretty brilliant looking back on it. My point is this. In that moment, I had no confidence in myself that I was able to drive that car, zero, because I had no idea that the ability was in me. But my dad knew. He knew it the whole time. And he had confidence in me that I did not have in that moment. And I just needed somebody to show me. I needed somebody to remind me of who I was and what I had living inside of me, which was the ability to drive that car and to love it. And here's what I want to say to you. I think one of the main reasons that you struggle in life, one of the main reasons that you fail in life, is because you have no idea who you are. And you have no idea what, or more, more accurately, who is living inside of you. And today, the Apostle Peter is going to give us one of those reminders like I got when I was 16. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we are sort of studying together what really is just a letter written by the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' right-hand guys, and he writes to some Christians in the first century at the very beginning stages of 
the church, the, the, the community of Jesus Christ. And today, this letter, you have it in your Bible, and we call it a book. But it's called First Peter, as you probably see on the screen behind me. And last week, Nathan came, and he took us basically to the end of chapter 1 of Peter's letter, where Peter calls the church to be a holy community. And we learned last week that holy doesn't mean what you often think it means. It just means set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is to live in love and do God's mission within the world. And in verse 15, which we looked at last week in chapter 1, Peter says to these normal, everyday Christians like you, like me, he says to them, you're supposed to be holy just like God is holy. And I can imagine those people, when they read those words in those first churches for the first time, probably felt a little bit like I did the day my dad threw me the keys. They're like, wait a minute, you want me to do what? <laughs> holy. Really? That's my job. Yeah, that's your job. Okay, well, you just had not spent a lot of time with me. You don't understand me. You don't know what I know, and I don't have that in me. You probably should go find someone else for that job. And Peter, I think, understands that kind of reaction. I think he, he, he gets that that's how we feel about this whole thing. And so I think Peter, real wisely, as a, any good teacher would, he shifts the focus at the beginning of chapter 2. And instead of talking to them about what they're supposed to do, which he just finished, he wants them to describe to them who they are. But he starts off in an interesting place. He starts by looking at Jesus for a bit. And I want to read to you again what we've already heard, verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, you are coming to Christ. He is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for this great honor. Now, we need to spend a little bit of time on some imagery here that honestly gets a little bit lost on us in our culture. It's the imagery, the idea, the picture of a temple because well, you don't go to any temples, and you don't know of many temples around. But to this audience that Peter is addressing here, this is super important. The temple was the place where heaven and earth intersected. That was the purpose of the temple. The temple was where God and human beings were brought together. See, this idea of God dwelling in his temple with his people in their presence, with them together, is woven all through the Old Testament, all the way up to the story of when Jesus comes into the world. And one of the big mistakes that we have made in the modern Western church is in, in the way that we view and interpret our entire Bibles is we don't see that very clearly. See, most of us grew up with this very clear idea that we thought the whole point of history, we thought the whole emphasis of the Bible and the stories in the Bible, they're just trying to get human beings out of the earth, off the planet, to go be with God in heaven one day when they're dead. And that's the whole story. But one of my favorite Bible scholars, his name is Tom Wright, he points out that if you go back and you really dive into the world of these Jewish authors who wrote our scriptures, that that idea is something that we have created really over, over centuries. But the idea that they held when, when they wrote about these things was much different. They believed that God's purpose for creating humanity, for creating the world, was that God intended to come and dwell with us, not the other way around. That humans were meant to live and to work and to reign in God's world with God. 
to build and enjoy a world where love and justice, the kind that is of God's nature, would be felt, experienced, and seen all over creation. Now, the problem with that idea is, well, it's us. It's human beings. Human beings decided we didn't like that plan. And they kept rejecting their purpose. We keep rejecting our purpose. We keep rejecting our role over and over again. Human beings like the idea of ruling and reigning, just not with God. (laughs) We want to do it without him. And so human beings move God out of his rightful place as king, and they want to rule and reign on their own. And whenever that happens, well, you get what we got. You get what we see in this world. You get sin. You get all its natural, destructive consequences. But the truth is, God has never given up on his original plan for his creation. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a temple. God creates human beings and puts them in a garden perfectly suited for them so that he could live with them. He walks and talks with them. It is the first temple where God and humans, heaven and earth, intersect. God and humans are living and working together. Until they decide to stop trusting God and do things their own way, they no longer want to rule with God. They just want to rule. And they suffer the consequences. But God never gives up. He chooses a nation, Israel, and God says, you are my chosen people, and I'm going to come and live with you and bless you, and together we'll build the world the way it was meant to be and they create this temporary temple called a tabernacle where God dwells among them. And over and over again, God's people reject their purpose and reject God's presence, even after they find a permanent homeland and build a permanent temple where God is present among them. They continue to reject God as their king. Israel sets up its own human king, and God even allows them to do this. But he reminds them to always remember who they are. You are my people, and I am your one true king. Trust me. Follow me. And sometimes they do. Most of the time, they don't. And it gets to the point where Israel starts to trust more in their temple and the system of religion that grows up all around it than they do in the God who wants to dwell among them. And so God comes to them one final time. Jesus, born as a baby to a poor Jewish family whose sole message is the kingdom of God is here among you. Jesus would refer to his own body as a temple, and this was intentional language he was using. Jesus was claiming that through him, God had come to dwell with his people again. He wasn't locked up in a temple made out of stones. God was once again among his people. But as Peter tells us in his letter, Jesus, who is the cornerstone or the foundation of this new temple God has created, was rejected by God's people. Just like they'd done throughout history, human beings didn't want God living among them, so they killed him. They destroyed the temple, the place where God and humans intersected. But Jesus once said, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And he did. Jesus's body came out of the tomb, proving that he was who he claimed to be all along. God coming to dwell among people again. Now, you may need a nap after all of that, but all of that is packed into what Peter is describing, Jesus as this living cornerstone or foundation of a new temple that he is building. But then Peter says something next that would floor his audience. He sets Jesus up as the foundation of the new temple, the new dwelling place of God. And then he says, 
and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. It's hard to describe the impact this probably would have had on the people the first time they heard this. The church this was written to was a mixture of Jewish and non-Jewish people, and all these Jewish folks would have thought, okay, I know that God was with us in the garden in Genesis. I know he was here in the tabernacle in the wilderness. I know he's present in the temple in Jerusalem, and I believe that God was with us in the person of Jesus. But you just called all of us a temple. You just said that God is present in me and in this man and woman sitting next to me who are not Israelites. They aren't God's chosen people, his special nation. Peter, you're making it sound like the temple, the place where God lives, is us, like all of us. And it's like Peter says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. But it's even better than that. He says, what's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Again, this priest language has a lot packed into it for them. These priests were a very select group. To be a priest in the Jewish faith, you had to be from a particular tribe. You had to be a man. You had to go through some serious education and training. You had to devote your life to your position. And you were the only one who could enter into the temple of the holiest, most sacred place and offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. No one got as close to God as the priests did. And they're thinking, Peter, you just said that we, these everyday ordinary people, are the temple of God, which is the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God lives. And you said that we're priests who are the ones who represent God to everybody else. Peter, we know what a temple is. We know what a priest is. That ain't us, but it is. That's who you are. The problem is you have no idea who you are. You have no idea who lives in you. See that idea that Kelly just explained? The idea that you are a living temple, you're a holy priest, it is so critical to what Peter wants to get across to us. And I think that's why he just keeps repeating it kind of in this passage. In verse 9, <clears throat> again, he says, You're a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God because he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See those words right there that you just re heard me read? Those are the same words used in the Old Testament when God described the nation of Israel when he set them up. When God called them out and he chose them to be the ones through whom the world would be rescued and the world would be recreated. Only now, when Peter says them, they're not limited to a nation, of an ethnic group. This is good news. Remember when Jesus came? This shall be good news for how many people? All the people. Jesus said, on this foundation, this bedrock foundation of who he is, of himself, he said, I will build my church, my gathering. That word means my assembly, my family, my people. And then Jesus said, the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, and all hell will not overcome my people. Why? Because I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to be with them. 
I'm going to empower them to show the true nature of the one true living God. And who is God? God is love. And so they're going to be my partners. They're going to be my representatives. And we're just going to go out and we're going to work together and we're going to remake this world into the place that God fully intended it to be from the beginning. So I'll say to you again, you have no idea who you are. That's the problem. You have no idea who lives in you. I often wonder sometimes what that first group of men and women who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, what that experience must have been like, specifically when they, when they saw him with their own eyes and they realized something new's come, something new is happening. There is a new world, there is a new existence, and it is the one that God had always promised would come. It had finally broken through, and it was here, and it was in Jesus. And now the kingdom of God that they had talked about for so long, it was available to them. And it was a life that they could not have even imagined because now through Jesus' death was defeated. We didn't have anything to fear there. So this life is just completely set free. And I imagine those first followers, what they might have been thinking. They're standing up on a mountain one day, and Jesus is there with them. And they're waiting to hear what Jesus had to say next because they were hanging on his every word. They want to hear, Jesus, how are you going to finally redeem the whole creation so that we can see what happens in you and in us happen all over the world? When's the kingdom going to fully take hold? And Jesus looks at them and he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And I know they're thinking, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 40 days ago, we saw you hung on a Roman cross. They took you down and put you in a tomb, and here you are talking to us. Yeah, you got all the power. You got all the authority. Whatever you say goes, we're with you. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. And Jesus says, okay. So go. Go. You spread this good news that you now understand and know and feel and experience. And you go help people become disciples of mine. Teach them everything that I've taught you about how to do life and how to love like you've seen me love. And while you go and do that, remember I'm with you every step of the way. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and he's gone. <laughs> Can you imagine the first thing they must have thought? Uh, no. <laughs> we don't got this. I mean, Jesus, we were waiting on you to kind of finish the job, right? But you just gave us a job. But then a few days later, in fact, in a matter of weeks, they would come to fully understand and realize that in reality, they were mistaken. The job was finished. The work had been done. The kingdom was here. It had come. God's recreation project was fully engaged. It was fully on display. And if you remember your Old Testament, this is the way God intended things to work from the very beginning. God has always, always invited his people, invited human beings into a partnership with him in ruling and reigning in creation and remaking the world. That's what he's been doing from the very beginning. So now through Jesus, eternal, abundant life in the kingdom of God has been made available to every person who truly wants to partner with God in his project of redeeming creation. So now, every time you and I live out the character of God in our lives, what that means is when we embrace unconditional, sacrificial, other-centered, enemy-embracing love, 
The kind that Jesus has shown for us, when we live that out, we have brought the kingdom of God to bear in this world. We are temples of the living God. We are where heaven and earth collide. We become this royal priesthood, this holy nation who live in exile in the middle of a world covered in darkness, sin, evil, hatred, and injustice. But remember what Jesus said. Those powers, that stuff, already defeated, already taken care of. And they do not stand a chance against my church, my people, my community. The Apostle Paul would later go on to say to us, we are fighting a battle, but not the kind of battle you think about when you think about battling. We don't use weapons of war. We don't fight against people. We fight against those principalities, those powers of evil and sin and death. But we don't use weapons of war. We use the weapons of love and sacrifice and service and peace because they flow out of our God who is nothing but that. I recently heard one of my favorite preachers, his name is Greg Boyd, and you've probably heard me quote him many times. He was describing uh, this idea that I think helps us see this a little bit clearly about our job, our vocation, our calling. And it's an image that you find all over Scripture, but really succinctly in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 18, where James says this. He said, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be kind of a first fruits of all that he has created. Now, when you hear that word, again, it's another one of those words that we don't use much in our culture, this idea of a first fruit. When you understand that image, I think it paints a pretty clear picture of who we are in Jesus. See, in their day, when a farmer would sow his crops, they would begin to come in, and the harvest would come in, but not all at once. Usually, there were parts of the harvest that would come first, and they would spring up early, but the rest of the harvest would be coming later. So the farmer would go out and he would pull those first fruits out of the fields and he would package them together and he would take them to the market. And he would show them at the market and, and they were a preview of what was to come. And everybody knew when they saw the farmer holding out his first fruits, they would look and see, that, oh, there's a harvest coming, but that's what we can look forward to. That's what's coming. The quality of the first fruit anticipates the quality of the rest of the harvest. And if the rest of the harvest is going to be like that, see, the reason for this is the farmer wanted people to put the down payment on the rest of the harvest. And so people would come and they would see and they say, if there's more of that coming, let me get in on that. I don't want to miss out on that. And they would order more and more. And he would set them up to be ready to receive the rest of the crop when it came in. Just the rest of the crop wasn't ready yet, but it was coming. But the first fruits were the assurance that the good things were coming. So what's the point? The point is, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been adopted into his family, if you are the church, you are the first fruits of God's creation. You, me, we're the preview of what the world's going to be like. We have, been we have been made ready for heaven. The problem is the rest of the world just don't know it yet. The rest of the world doesn't realize the heaven that has been prepared for them. But didn't Jesus himself say these words? Remember what Jesus said? He said, here's what the kingdom's going to be like. Don't be misled. Don't get impatient. The kingdom of, of, of God, he said, it's like a mustard seed. 
A mustard seed is so small that if you saw it on the ground, you probably wouldn't see it on the ground. If you walked by it, you'd step on it. It's insignificant. You don't even know it's there. But when it takes root, it grows into such a large plant that Jesus said birds from all over the place will come and make their nests and live in it. Jesus said, you know what the kingdom of God's going to be like? He said, it's like when, you, when you're working through a batch of dough and you put a little bit of yeast in it and you work it in. He said, you put it in there and you bake it. That little bit of yeast is going to start growing slowly over time and it's going to fill that entire batch of yeast and bake that bread. That's the way the kingdom comes. Jesus says there's a process to it. There's an unfolding to it that will occur throughout history. And the cool thing about our God is he ain't in no hurry. He's real patient. It's part of his loving nature. And so the kingdom, when it comes in our world, it's more like the persistent growth of a mustard seed more than it is like a military conquest. It's more like the gradual way that yeast leavens a loaf of bread more than a forceful, hostile takeover of the kingdoms of this world. That's what it's like. So then Peter says to his readers, you are being built right now into the temple of God. He says, you, right now, you're like priests. You represent God to this world. You're the first fruits. You're a preview of heaven. You're a preview of the world that is to come. So what do you do with that calling? You live in it. So be a good preview. Be a good first fruits of the kingdom of God. Show the world what the kingdom looks like. And that means we don't go out and judge people who live in darkness. We just go live in light. We don't go out and judge the sinners. We just go out and try to be holy. We don't live in fear that we have to control others and make them be the way we are. No. We just bring the kingdom into the world and serve and love just like Jesus has only served and loved us. We just be the change we want to see in this world. We are heaven here and now. So I often tell people, as far as your decisions go, you want to know how to make a decision about life? Let this be your rule. If you're not going to think about it and you're not going to do it in, in heaven, don't think about it or do it now. Because you're already there. The life has been made available to you. And always remember this. You're not doing it by yourself. You are not alone. And I'm not alone either. Because Jesus said the gates of hell are not going to prevail. He didn't say over my individual followers. He said the gates of hell will not prevail over my church my assembly my gathering my community that's why you need to be a part of the community that's where the power is and that's where God is bringing heaven into earth and he is remaking this world into his image so like we always say around here you're invited and you need it because it's where you were meant to be so we're going to take a few moments and reflect on what God might be calling us to do in, in light of that fact. So Nathan's going to come and lead us.